as we um, continue our series on scripture tonight, uh, we are going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. So if you want to grab a Bible from the pew in front of you or grab your personal Bible and open it up to the fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30. The last few weeks we've been looking at the attributes of Scripture. We've looked at the Bible as revelation. We've looked at the necessity of Scripture. We've looked at the sufficiency of Scripture. And tonight we look at the clarity of Scripture. Uh, The passage that we're going to open with tonight takes place in Deuteronomy. And some of the titles of biblical books uh, are pretty easy to nail down just on a first read. You know, Isaiah was probably written by a man named Isaiah. The Gospel of Mark is the Gospel according to Mark. It's uh, easy to put those things together. Even um, uh, Thessalonians uh, connected to the city of Thessalonica. Um, But Deuteronomy is not one of those books. And uh, what the word actually means, it's a compound word that comes from deuter, meaning to, and nomos, meaning law. In other words, this is Moses reviewing the law already given to Israel that's contained in Exodus and Leviticus in particular. Um, At this point in Israel's history, they're on the cusp of entering into the promised land, and they're in the conclusion, the final days of the leadership of Moses. Moses is not going to enter into the promised land, and in just a chapter from where we're reading tonight, he, he will be dead. And so effectively, what Deuteronomy is, is a final uh, sermon of Moses to remind Israel of the covenant and exhort them to keep it. Um, In fact, what's just happened in chapters 28 and 29 is Moses has laid out two potential consequences in store for Israel uh, if they obey then blessings, and if they disobey, then cursings. And so where we are now is the climax. It's the conclusion of Moses' sermon. But I want you to notice tonight, he lays the success of Israel in the covenant firmly at the feet of the fact that the law or the covenant, or what we would call the Torah, the first five books of the Bible or the books of Moses, are comprehensible, understandable. That's what we mean when we talk about the clarity of Scripture. So read with me here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, just four verses, um, verse 11 through 14. Moses here speaking to Israel says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this, doctrine of the clarity of scripture tonight, Lord, uh, I pray that we would feel the weight and the value of this belief, Lord, that because your word is understandable, 
because it is comprehensible. That means that you are truly knowable. It means that your will is accessible to us and not clouded in mystery. And it means that your great plan of salvation and even the foundation of the faith that you call us to is written in an open book laying before us uh, and inviting us to come and see, to hear and to know and to believe. So I pray, Lord, that as we look at these things, you would bring clarity to us through the clarity of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. What we need to notice tonight is that Moses is referring not just, in fact, in a sense, not even to Israel's ability to keep the commandments. A cursory reading of uh, verse 11, for this commandment that I command today is not too hard for you, makes it sound like Moses' primary point is the things that God wants you to do, you're capable of doing. I want you to notice, though, that he doesn't say these commandments, plural, of which there are many in the covenant, uh, in the books of Moses. He says the commandment. What he's referring to here is not the individual commandments that make up the law of Moses, if you will, but the covenant as a whole, okay? Uh, The faithfulness to God. Um, And so now that includes obedience. Look at verse 10 right before it. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so there's a reference to this. However, if you read the earlier context, like I said, not only does Moses lay out two paths ahead of Israel, one obedience which leads to blessing and the other disobedience which leads to cursing, he clearly lays out that the future involves disobedience. If you read through the curses, he doesn't just say these things might happen, he says these things will happen. In fact, he goes further and he says, and when they do Here's what happens next. And so he starts to talk about when you are out of the land in judgment, when you are far from the Lord, turn back to him with all your heart. He will hear your prayers. And then ultimately, he starts to speak of a way that God is going to do something new and bring this all to an end. And so notice, notice uh, verse, um, let's go back to four. If you're at, if you are outcasts, or your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. Notice he's not saying you get a second chance. He's not saying God will bring you back and you can try again. He says the second time you will succeed. Okay. In other words, to put this in summary form, Moses here is talking not just about the commandments that make up the law, but the whole covenant, which includes those commandments, but also includes uh, ways to deal with falling short. So written in the books of Moses are not just the Ten Commandments, thou shalt and thou shalt not, but also the entire sacrificial system. 
When there is sin, here's what you need to do about sin, as well as God's great plan that culminates not merely in Israel getting it right, but further out in God making them a right people. In fact, notice in verse 11, it says, For this commandment I command you today is not too hard for you. Now, that word for hard can imply difficult to accomplish. It can, but that's not its, uh, not its only meaning. In fact, if you have a different translation, it might even say that the commandment I command you today is not too wonderful for you, meaning that it's comprehensible. It's, in other words, the idea of difficulty here is not difficulty of ability, but difficulty of comprehension, difficult to understand. What Moses is arguing here is that the covenant that God has laid out is understandable to the average Israelite. And remember what's at stake here. Moses, who has been the mouthpiece of God and the mediator of this covenant and the leader of Israel, Moses, who whenever they had a question, they would go directly to him and seek answers and he would help them understand these things. Moses is gone. At the end of this sermon, he walks off the stage. He walks out of Israel's life. They no longer have it. All they have instead is the books of Moses, the message of Moses. And he says here, what I have written for you, what I have presented to you, God's will as revealed uh, in the written book of Moses, the book of the law, is not too hard for you to understand. That is the essence of what we're talking about when we talk about the clarity of Scripture. Now, uh, culturally, we have two great resistances to that, two great hesitations, two great limitations where we go, well, I don't actually think so. The first one has to do with the postmodern philosophy that comes out of especially uh, the French school known as the deconstructionists, okay, and before them the structuralists. The idea here is basically that because every time there is communication, uh, uh, perfect communication is impossible. Because that's true, then true communication is actually impossible. Okay. What they suggested, and it's actually easy to demonstrate where they're coming from, is that when you use a particular word, you have in mind particular actual things. Okay. Sometimes it's reference things, like you refer to a car, and you have a particular car in mind. You have something you're imagining, but you also in your words have intentions. Okay. Um, but as we've all experienced, miscommunication is a normal part of human life. For example, you may hold a semantic set of definitions for a particular word that is slightly different than mine. And so when I say a particular word, you fill it in with meaning, but that may not be exactly the meaning that I'm trying to convey. Okay? Um, this gets even more pronounced, according to the deconstructionists, when we deal with what they would call a dead text. Okay? Now, if I write you a letter and you call me up on the phone and say, hey, when I read this, is this what you mean? we can keep talking. We can continue the conversation and that leads, leads to clarification, but they argue, especially with a dead text, that because the author is lost, so is his meaning. Okay. One of the ways they engage with this has to do with the idea of the hermeneutical circle. And it's a pretty basic idea. Uh, the idea is that when you come into any piece of communication, you don't come in neutral. You don't come in as a blank slate. 
You come in with all of your blind spots and biases. You come in with all of your opinions. You come in fully enculturated, right, for your own presuppositions, belief structures, values, all of that is already on the page. And then you engage with something that is, by definition, different. And so you impose, this is the language they would use, all that you are on the text and therefore limit its possible meaning, okay? Now, hopefully, generally, what happens next is that somehow what you read shapes who you are. Somehow what you hear changes what you think, right? Human beings are not stable in their opinion as we engage, and uh, deconstructionists would agree with this, as we engage in text, they change us. What they argue, though, is that hermeneutical circle is so continuous and we can't break out of it, and so real understanding of communication back and forth is impossible. What they suggest instead is that the best thing we can do is forget about the author's intent and to some degree forget about meaning we can find in the text and instead find meaning in ourselves or for some deconstructionists like Stanley Fish in our community of interpretation, okay? And so, so um, the original intention is lost. There is no authoritative meaning that corresponds to truth. There is just my meaning, and that my meaning shapes me in my community, and that's where it gets value. Okay? So notice what this would say about, uh, about our message we're reading here, known as the Bible. It would say what the intentions of the authors are in their culture, in their language, in their time, is lost to us. And what's important is our response to the text and how we think about it in our context and it shapes us, okay? Now, one of the challenges, uh, one of the fallacies even of, of deconstructionism uh, is practically we all know and constantly engage in communication in a way that brings about understanding. It actually happens, we do it all the time, including deconstructionists. In fact, the, the fact that deconstructionists write books arguing for their belief system shows that they believe these books can convey their intentions accurately. And it might be a little bit silly, but I could sit before a deconstructionist and say, hey, I really enjoyed your book. What I got out of it was there really is objective meaning in every text, and we can find that intent. And they could say all they want, no, that's not what I meant, but they've painted themselves in a corner. Either my reading response matters more, or there really is authorial intent that shapes meaning and is discoverable by the audience, okay? And so there's a practical inability for deconstruction to work. Now, there are other things that touch the ideas of deconstruction. A significant one is power, okay? Meaning is power. And so deconstructionists don't just say meaning is impossible. They challenge the status quo to break and to push against. That's why they're not just no construction, they're deconstruction. They're seeking to tear apart. But laying aside where they've influenced uh, the modern mindset is with this new hermeneutic. That what, what it means to me is most important. It's all we can really know anyways, and it's where we should spend our time. Okay? Um, there is a second problem, though. Even if we would agree, and I would suggest we have to because we do it in practice all the time, even if we would agree that true communication is possible, even if it's not exhaustive, maybe I'll never know exactly what you meant by every word you mean, but I can still have a general and true understanding of what you said. Maybe that can even happen with a cultural artifact, and we'll talk more about this tonight, like a uh, book written in a different place, in a different time, in a different culture. 
But another problem our culture has is says that may be true of human-to-human communication, but it, could it possibly be true of God? Could it really be true that someone who is so different in nature than we are could communicate in a way that we, being of a much lesser degree, could understand? Okay? And so one of the ways this is sometimes put is, isn't this like expecting us to you know, sit down with an ant colony? and begin to address the ant colony. Do we really think there's a way for them to understand what we're saying? Right, we're on a different level of being. How much more is the distance between us and the divine? And so this this belief system uh, suggests that God is so mysterious and so different than human beings and so transcendent of our thoughts, whatever there is in the divine reality, we can't wrap our head around, so how could we even know what was being said? There's a slight parallel to this in a film that came out a few years ago, Arrival, right? And in Arrival, this alien species of a completely different kind than human life shows up and seeks to communicate with human beings, but they don't play by the rules of human language. The way they think about grammar and syntax, in fact, the way they experience time is so different uh, that they're stumped on how to understand what it is this species is trying to convey. Now, it's worth pointing out Even in that film, they finally do crack the code of those differences. But what about with the divine? What we need to remember tonight is that uh, we would agree with the hindrances modern people put on human perspective. Because we are finite and because we are limited, we are limited in our ability to understand. If the Bible proclaimed to be average Joes or even above average Janes thoughts on God, that limitation would be real. All of us trying to observe the unobservable, all of us trying to explain the inexplicable, all of us trying to uh, articulate the transcendent, we would experience that finiteness of place, time, language, intelligence, all those things. Uh, But the Bible says something more than that. Now, even if the Bible was merely God doing incomprehensible, in other words, miraculous things in space and time, and then human beings going, here's what happened, and here's what it means, we would still find ourselves in the same problem, wouldn't we? Okay, the interpretation of the acts would be done in the voice of limited human perspective. But... If the Bible truly is revelation, in other words, if God has not just done in human history, history, but spoken in human history, we need to recognize tonight philosophically we are in a completely different category. To recognize that we can't look up to and explain the divine is one thing. To say that the divine can't bridge that gap is a different thing entirely. The early church fathers uh, explained this with the doctrine of condescension. The difference between condescension and condescending is important. Condescending is when you talk down to someone because you do not value them, right? And so you can speak condescendingly to a child because they're just a child. Condescension is when you speak to a child in language they understand. You come down to their level, not in the form of disrespect, but because you want to be understood, okay? 
And the early church fathers rightly pointed out that what we find in Scripture is a God who desires to be understood. Okay? So let me give you a good example of this. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is 15 years into following God into the great unknown based solely on a promise. Come to a land that I will show you and I will give you many descendants and I will give you the land and I will make you a blessing and all of these things. 15 years in, in Genesis 15, God is speaking to Abraham and Abraham asks a question. He says, God, you have promised me all of these descendants, yet at the moment it is my house servant who gets everything, the full inheritance because I have no children. He's wrestling with the reality of, will God keep his word? You say you're going to do, but how can I know? And what happens next is incredibly odd and cryptic, if you've, re- if you've never read it, okay? What happens is God says, okay, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one of each of these animals, I want you to cut them all in half, and I want you to lay them outside in a row, the halves on the left and on the right, one by one, like basically an aisle of carcasses, Okay? And so we see as Abraham does that, uh, and we look at that today and we go, okay, what is this? Is this some sort of uh, ritual that's significant to God? Why does he demand these sacrifices in these days? But ancient Near East scholarship tells us that that's actually a relatively normal practice. It's something that Abraham had probably engaged on on other occasions. It was a form of making a contract. Okay. The idea, is, as barbaric as it might seem to us, is actually pretty easy to comprehend. What would happen is two people would make an agreement, and then they would go through this ritual like we would sit down in a courthouse and sign a contract, for example, or write up some sort of an agreement and then sign it. Uh, they would lay out these animals, and then they both would walk between them. And the implication is, if we don't keep up our side of the bargain, let what happened to these animals happen to us. Okay. It's, it's an oath, if you will. And so, effectively, God takes a tremendously human form of communication, a tremendously enculturated one, and he says, okay, for you to understand that I'm a God who keeps my word, let me make a promise the same way your neighbor would make a promise with you. Now, that being said, what happens is not that God and Abraham walk through these aisles of carcasses. Instead, God shows up late. And so we find Abraham shooing off the carrion birds to keep them off the carcasses. And he does this all day. And when night falls, he's exhausted. He falls asleep and he has a vision. And in the vision, he sees this flaming torch representing God. And God speaks to him and confirms the promises and walks through the carcasses himself. Okay. So what I want to point out to you is that in doing so, God is not limited to the form he chooses. But by breaking those limitations, he's actually making even more clear what he wants to say. What he's saying is, the promises I'm making you are not about you keeping up your end of the bargain. I am the faithful one. They're my promises. I will keep them whether you yes or no, whether you right or wrong, whether you keep up your end of the bargain or not, okay? That's condescension. And effectively, that's what we have in the scriptures. Have you ever wondered why, if the Bible is really the word of God, it's so enculturated? It expresses things in cultural concepts. In fact, if you read about other practices, even religious practices, in the general area and time of Israel, you'll find a lot of similarities. 
Have you ever wondered why, uh, why God's word is written in Hebrew and Greek and in some places Aramaic? Has it ever struck you how the illustrations and the metaphors and uh, the picture language, all of these things are clearly built into uh, the people who wrote it? How can we say it's the word of God when it's so clearly the words of enculturated men? It's because God desires to communicate. And so he's condescended to speak the language and even the customs of his audience. Okay. Now, one last thing before we move forward. Um, that may seem like all well and good for ancient Israel or first century Rome, right? Because when God says, let me put it in a language I understand and then speaks in Greek, that's great if Koine Greek is your language. But what, what does that mean for us? We don't speak Koine Greek. It, the Bible is enculturated, but it's not our culture. It's written in human language, but not our human language, right? So how is this good news for us today? In fact, wouldn't we find Moses' words here? What I impart to you is easy to understand, to be challenging for us. I mean, this is the first five books of the Old Testament. Do we find them easy to understand? We would call foul and go, that might have been true for them, but how is it true for us? But I want to suggest to you a very important point tonight, that condescension means that God plays by the rules. It doesn't mean that if you're illiterate, even the Bible is readable to you. It means that God's communication plays by the same rules of other communication, okay? And so we can trust Greek, Greek grammar to show us what God really means. We can trust uh, that the cultural aspects of here uh, can be understood and conveyed and that it plays by those rules, okay? Um, and so, so that's what we're talking about. Now, I want you to notice, going back to Deuteronomy, what Moses says here. He says here, it's not too wonderful for you, neither is it far off, and then he chooses two illustrations to make his point, and they both involve travel, but in different ways. Notice what he says in verse 12. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it, okay? So notice the idea here has to do with spiritual security clearance, right? The idea here is, he says, it's not hidden behind access that you need to be super spiritual or, uh, you know, super transcendental or extra righteous to understand. You don't need to somehow make it to heaven to know what God wants to say. Now, we need to recognize how pertinent and contemporary that point is. Because, for example, we are often super intrigued by and looking for truth in experiences like NDEs, near-death experiences, right? Nothing will make a bestseller quicker than a person who has been declared dead for five minutes and comes back and says, while I was out of it, I had this vision of heaven, right? What are they offering? Access. Access to the unknowable. Access to what is unseen, okay? Moses says here, what I present to you today, you don't need a spiritual guru for. You don't need some sort of uh, out-of-body experience to discover, nor do you need to, um, you know, uh, have direct access to the big man upstairs, some, some 
like I said, I think we'll go back to that word spiritual guru. What he's saying is you don't need to elect someone who's good enough or smart enough or righteous enough or spiritual enough to go and find who God is, what God wants to say. Now, the second thing he says in verse 13 is similar. He says, neither is it beyond the sea. Now, remember here, Israel is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That is not as big as the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean, but it's still a relatively sizable body of water. And for Israel, they basically saw the other shore of the Mediterranean as the ends of the earth. Not in a literal sense, but it's far enough away it might as well be. And so whenever they want to say, if I were to flee away to the ends of the earth, what do they say? Tarshish, which is Spain. Okay, uh, And so the idea here is one of uh, tremendous pilgrimage or travel. Okay? You don't have to go and find God's will. You don't have to put yourself through the paces. It's not only accessible for those who um, you know, go off the grid and into the wilderness or who study under you know, Guru Y on Mountain X, you know, uh, these types of things. Instead here... He says, verse 14, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Okay. To put it in a very summary sense, biblically, we don't have to go and find God. God has made himself known. And he's done so in ways implied here that are understandable, that are comprehensible, that are clear. Okay. Now, it's not just Moses who makes this claim. Practically, this is the way we see the Word of God working within the Word of God. So, for example, Moses here lays out not just the covenant itself. God is the one true God who brought you out of Egypt. Here are the promises God has made. Obey the Lord and be faithful to him. If you do not, here are the consequences. And when those consequences come upon you, this is what God will do. All those pieces are involved in these first five books. Okay, um, But there comes a time late in Israel's history where they have done just this, where they've walked away from the covenant. In fact, they haven't just rejected it. They have literally forgotten it. It's buried in the annals of history, unknown and unremembered. God of the Bible, Jehovah, as he's known in the Old Testament, has just been reduced to one of many gods. And even the temple itself in Jerusalem is basically a very large storage closet where they've just been shoving stuff for years and a place where all the gods of their neighbors are worshipped. Okay. Here's what happens. A king named Josiah sets up some spring cleaning for the temple. And while one of his servants is digging around an antechamber in the temple, he comes across a copy of this, the Law of Moses, and he begins to read it. And he thinks to himself, uh-oh. And then he takes it to the king, and he says, you need to read this. Look at what I found. And the king goes, oh, no. And so he calls for national repentance. He calls for all of Israel to forsake the idolatry. He drives all of the pagan worship, not just out of the temple, but out of Israel, and he reforms them back to the covenant because it had been forgotten. Okay, But what does that imply? God doesn't send, in the days of Josiah, a prophet to get them back on track. He doesn't send a new representative or a mediator. It's just the written word of God that speaks and shows them where they were supposed to be, 
and how far they've fallen, as well as how to get back on track. Now, that's not the only place we see this. Unfortunately, Josiah's uh, revival, if you will, his restoration of Israel is temporary, and it's also pretty rare in Israel's history. Of the 40-plus kings that uh, rule over Israel and Judah in the books of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, in that area, only eight of them are labeled as being good kings. Okay? For the most part, Israel is on a downward spiral, and there's a few places where they jump up a ring on the ladder, and then they spiral again. And so eventually... Eventually, Israel continues to forsake and betray the covenant, worship other gods, etc., uh, and God deports them out of the land. First, the ten tribes that make up Israel under, uh, under the superpower known as Assyria, and then after that, the next superpower that raises up is Babylon, and they take out Judah. And so uh, Judah gets uh, moved to Babylon. That's where the books of uh, Daniel or the book of Esther take place. And then... As God promises through prophets like Isaiah, through even the book of Deuteronomy, God has a plan to bring them back to the land, and it all happens in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, in Nehemiah, basically, he's a Jewish part of the Persian royalty cabinet. He works directly for the king. He's his cupbearer, okay? And he requests because his grief is deep, to go back and with not only the king's permission, but also with his money and his influence, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, including the temple. Restore the walls around it, begin to repopulate it uh, with the Jews. And so he sets off to do this. While he's there, he's not just restoring a city, but a people. He's not just rebuilding a temple, but rebuilding the practices of the temple. All of these things are involved. And so guess how he goes about doing so. Look in Nehemiah chapter 8. And Nehemiah is before the Psalms and the prophets, so if you hit either of those, go backwards to the very end of Israel's history. Right before Esther and Job. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, the same one we were reading from in Deuteronomy, okay, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. Now, to explain that little phrase there, that means down to the age where they would comprehend what's going on, okay? All who could understand means down to the level of child who could, who could understand what was about to be read. Uh, on the first day of the seventh month, verse 3, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Why did it take that long? Because he literally read the first five books of the Bible aloud, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Okay. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Okay. And so he stands and he reads aloud. In fact, we're told a little bit later that there's a secondary part of what's happening. I want you to notice it uh, in verse 
uh, seven. Okay, so there's a list of names of people who jump to right after the Levites, who helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. How did they do that? They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, I, I want you to notice there, and we'll come back to this, they do some explaining. They give the sense, okay? But I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they gave the interpretation. When they use the word sense here, and this is implied in the Hebrew too, it means they told them what it meant, okay? In other words, the Bible sees here in the day of Nehemiah the true meaning of the book of Moses as accessible and explainable to average people, even down to, um, you know, preteens. Okay, that's the idea of this passage. Okay, so this is what we're talking about when we talk about the clarity of Scripture. Now, we need to make some clarifications. We need to recognize um, some misunderstandings of this doctrine. First off, what we are saying tonight is not that every passage of Scripture is equally clear. I mean, that's, that's just evidently not the case. Some things in Scripture seem simple. Others seem tremendously complex. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, although this is written in human language, it's not your language, although it was written in space and time, not your time, and in culture, but not your culture, there are still things, still places where we're left scratching our head a little bit, where we don't have enough information to know exactly what it means. This morning as a church, we read from Psalm 87. Now, the last line of Psalm 87 says, all the singers find their springs in you, you being Mount Zion, being Jerusalem. Okay, first off, the word there for singers is so rare, we're not sure that's the best translation of that word, okay? And second, we aren't really sure what it means when it says all the singers find their springs in you. And we can make some guesses at that. Maybe the idea is one of inspiration, that the only songs worth singing are the ones about Mount Zion, right? And so the poets drink from the springs of Mount Zion for their inspiration. Maybe, but it's a little bit lost on us, okay? When we say that the scriptures are clear, we don't mean that every passage is equally clear, okay? The second thing is, when we say the scriptures are clear, we are not saying that it doesn't require work to understand it, okay? Um, here's, here's a good illustration. Like I said earlier, because the scripture is clear doesn't mean that if you are illiterate that it will be clear to you without instruction. It doesn't mean that you can read the Bible even if you can't read Moby Dick, okay? The idea of clarity that we're expressing is that because God's communication plays by human rules, that study and reading and employing those rules and even learning those rules improves your understanding of Scripture. Okay? Now let me add another misunderstanding here. When we talk about the clarity of Scripture, that doesn't mean that the Bible talks about everything. Nor does it mean that everything you'd ever want to know about God is recorded in the scriptures, and so God is clear. Okay. The Bible maintains that God's wisdom is unsearchable, that his uh, grace, the depths are unreachable, that his love is incomprehensible. Okay. 
In other words, that God is transcendent. Draw a box or give an explanation. It will never fully articulate everything that God is. But there's a difference between knowing something exhaustively and knowing something truly, but not exhaustively. Okay? And so the idea here is that the Bible is clear on what it says, not what it doesn't say, not what we wish it said. Okay? The last thing I want to deal with here uh, is, okay, so if Scripture is clear, if the Bible is clear, then why do we need teachers? And realize that's not just something that uh, our culture could throw at the feet in, in the question. It's a question that we should ask as well. Because the New Testament actually maintains, consider Ephesians, that God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. All five of those gifts to the church are word-based ministry gifts. Apostles were the witnesses, right, who testified to the Jesus they knew and lived with and saw raised. Prophets are those who say, thus says the Lord, and speak for God. Evangelists proclaim the good news of what God has done. And even pastors and teachers explain and imply. And the Bible says that that's provided by God. It's intentional. It's necessary. Okay? Um, when we say here uh, that the Bible is clear, it doesn't mean that, it, uh, that you don't need teachers. In fact, in fact, it does say something specific about how teaching works. Okay. The implication of the clarity of Scripture implies that the goal of preaching or teaching is to communicate what the Scripture says and that that can be judged by the audience listening to the teaching. In other words, we can test teachers, we can weigh what is said, we can decide if this is really what the Bible teaches. Okay? The goal of preaching is not to say something new or novel or insightful, nor is it to obscure the text. If you walk away from a preaching, uh, a church or a preacher or a sermon, and you think, I would have never seen that in the text, I would encourage you to keep in mind this idea of the clarity of Scripture. What I'm suggesting to you is that the proper way for a teacher to convey scripture, and it's built into how we handle things here, is what we saw in the book of Nehemiah. That the passage is read clearly, that the sense is given. Okay. Here's how I think about it in my own preaching ministry. My goal is not to tell you what the Bible says. My goal is to show you what the Bible clearly means. Okay. Meaning that I'm going to point to grammatical constructions. I'm going to point to literary context. I'm going to point to other parts of the Bible. Because that's something even the Reformers maintained, that even the most obscure of doctrines that the Bible teaches in one place is stated clearly in another place. Okay. And so there are things that in some passages are in the background. They're hidden. They're not as visible. But in other places, they're made clear. And we always interpret the obscure through the clear and not the other way around. Okay. So the idea here is actually uh, that the Bible is so clear that teaching is possible and good teaching, teaching is, is, um, uh, is testable. In fact, we see this playing out in the scriptures as well. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is on a preaching tour explaining what God has done in Jesus Christ. And he comes to a city and he explains and some people believe and some people don't and he shoot out the back door and then he goes from that place, Thessalonica, to a small town known as Berea. 
And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, says, now those in Berea were more honorable because they received Paul's teaching with gladness and then searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. Luke pauses and he holds up a model, an example for his audience, and he says, if you want a good example, an honorable example, be like the Bereans who heard what Paul said and then searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. Now, I can't resist making the point every time we come across this passage, but in the Greek, that little word if is a fourth-class conditional. Okay? In the Greek language, when you use the word for if or sense, uh, you can mean it in four different levels of classification. A first-class conditional is actually better translated sense. Okay? If your roommate says, hey, I'm leaving to the store, I'll be back in an hour, and you go, hey, if you're going to the store, could you get me some milk? You're not assuming or even asking if they're going to the store. You know they're going. Okay? That's a first-class conditional. Actually, Paul uses them all the time. But a fourth-class conditional, the only one we have in the entire New Testament is in Acts 17. And it means if as in as if. It's an unlikely statement. In other words, what Luke is conveying is that although those who heard Paul gladly, although they did hear him gladly, they were skeptical. They said, that can't be what the Bible really means, and they went looking for themselves. Even that skepticism is held up as being honorable and something that we should follow. Why? Because they searched the scriptures to see if those things were so. So what does it say next? So, because they searched the scriptures, many of them believed. Okay? What does that imply? It implies that although we need instruction, we also ourselves have the word of God that can be read can be comprehended, can be compared, can be held up against teaching so we can label it faithful to the message of the Bible or unfaithful to the message of the Bible, okay? That's the clarity of Scripture. Now, I want to give you a few more applications tonight of what this means. First off, this means that you, as you are, with your current understanding, can read the Bible profitably, now, I'm not saying that any given person will always get the right understanding of the Bible on the first try. This is something that involves time and it involves patience. But if we go back to that idea of the hermeneutical circle, yes, you bring your biases and blind spots and misunderstandings every time you read a text. But because the text is faithful and true, every time you encounter it, it shaves a little bit of your misunderstanding off and leaves itself intact. Okay? It is made of harder material, of sterner stuff than the falsehoods you hold on to, than your skewed perspective. And so regularly returning to the Bible and exposing yourself to the whole thing can, because of the clarity of Scripture, bring clarity to what God is actually saying. In other words, I'm saying that the clarity of Scripture doesn't remove the need for study or for teachers, or for investing in the original languages, or for continuing to read your whole life, or for comparing one passage to another. I'm saying that it demonstrates that that will be fruitful. It makes it worthwhile to do those things. Okay. Now, we need, to, we need to recognize something right now very important. 
which is this is only true and only good news if what the Bible records is accurate and true. If we remove that, then we remove everything. And we'll talk more about this and the significance of that next week as we look at authority, but we need to understand that the clarity of Scripture is of no value if it is clearly wrong. Okay? And so the truth matters here. Uh, But if it really is true, if it really is the word of God, then we can trust what it says and we can return to it and grow not just in our understanding of what the Bible says, but our understanding of who God is, of what he wants for us, and what he's done in Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, so let me just give you one more application tonight. I want to show you that this is not just a secondary issue, that this is the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian. And if we lose the clarity of Scripture, we lose Christianity as a whole. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans is best understand, understood as an argument. Uh, it's not just a general letter like what's up, church in Rome, how are you doing? This is what's going on in my life, and here's how you can help. Paul is actually laying out an entire argument for the belief system of the gospel he presents. And so he begins by showing that all are condemned under sin, and then he shows that the only way to fix that is not through obedience to the law and our own righteous works, but God's righteous work through Jesus Christ, which is received through faith. Now, I believe in the clarity of Scripture, so if you sit down and you read Romans 1 through 8 slowly and thoroughly, you'll see how that argument is working. You'll see the points he's making. Here in chapter 10, he brings to a conclusion something he started all the way back in Romans 4, which is that this is not a new thing. Jesus Christ is not plan B. It's not, well, God's first attempt, keeping the law, failed, Uh, and now he's provided a new attempt in Jesus, he actually says that the whole point of the first covenant is Jesus. So notice what he says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now to be clear there, the word there for end is not that because Jesus has come, we no longer need the law. It's end not temporally, it's end in teleos, in purpose. In fact, that's what the Greek word is here, it's teleos. Christ is the purpose of the law. In other words, he says the Old Testament, the whole covenant, is pointing towards and fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And it's the same word there, teleos, to bring it to an end. Okay, Um, so notice what he says in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, you might not be able to tell in the text you're reading tonight, but there Paul quotes Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18. Those who do the law will live by them. And so he's presenting two different ways of life. And he says, rightly and truly, If you could obey the commandments of the Old Testament perfectly, you would live by them. You would be saved. That's there, but it's not the point of it being there. And so notice what he says next. He says, verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, 
Okay, so Moses writes about righteousness on the law, and now he says, but the righteousness based on faith, his other possibility, says, and notice where he quotes from. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Does that sound familiar? It's the passage we read tonight. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, it almost seems at a cursory reading that Paul is actually using the text that most promotes righteousness is based on the law to say something different. In fact, sometimes he's been criticized of, of this same reader response hermeneutic that we talked about tonight, of ignoring the intent of Moses and replacing it with Jesus. But as we saw, Moses' point in Deuteronomy 30 is not just about keeping the individual commandments. In fact, if you read earlier in the passage, uh, in fact, okay, this is hermeneutically intense, so just stick with me for a second. Notice that it opens with, do not say in your heart. That language is not found in Deuteronomy 30. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 9, much earlier. Why does Paul use this introduction that's not from the context he's quoting? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses says, do not say in your heart, it's because of my righteousness that I am living in the promised land. Okay. He's making a hermeneutical maneuver here that, it, that rewards deeper study. But the point that he's making is, remember, that Christ is the goal of the law. It's how the hearts will be circumcised. It's how God will make the people of Israel righteous. And so notice what he does here. He says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Okay? He says, in the same way that the law was clear and available to Israel, the covenant was right there and present, so also today we don't have to go to heaven to bring Jesus down. In other words, the incarnation is not something we need to make happen. Paul's laid out that God's whole plan from the beginning was to become a man, to die in our place, and then freely offer forgiveness and salvation. And he says, but we don't have to do that. We don't have to ascend into heaven. Christ has come down on his own initiative as part of God's plan as the work of God and not our own. And then notice what he says next. Or, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss? He takes that imagery of across the sea and he deepens it to being a contrast with heaven, right? Heaven up, abyss, death, she uh, Sheol, the place of the dead, down. And he says, who will ascend the, into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay. The other thing we need is not just God to come and live the life we couldn't live and then pay the penalty for our sins by dying the death that we all deserve, but we also need resurrection. We need the newness of life that overcomes those things and then is made available to us. That is not our work. We don't need to descend into the grave. We don't have to walk into the tomb in Jerusalem with the paddles and rub them together and yell clear and bring Jesus back from the dead. God has miraculously done that on his own. So what's left for us, he says, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Okay. Notice here that the word is not just do this and you will live, the word is, here is what I have done on your behalf. And he says it's near and it's available and understandable. Any child can hear and comprehend Jesus Christ died for sinners. Believe on him and you will be saved. It's simple. It doesn't mean it's inexhaustible, right? It's incredibly deep. As the preachers used to say, a child can drink from this river and... Uh, 
and be nourished by it, but an elephant would drown in it, right? It's simple, but it's deep. And then notice what he says, because, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see the relationship between those two things? Because God has clearly communicated what he's done in Jesus Christ. All it takes to experience salvation is faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God has done and spoken, and the Bible implies that we can understand what he's done and spoken to the degree that all we have to do to know him, to trust in him, is believe it. That's the only work that's left for us to do, okay? The clarity of scripture leads to the simplicity of faith. You don't have to go the extra mile. You just have to take the word of God that he's spoken, spoken simply. In fact, look again what the two statements are here. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Two simple things. Jesus is Lord. Now, you need to hear in that title, not, you know, the barons, the land barons of, you know, British history. The word Lord is significant. It's the Lord of the Old Testament. It's Jehovah. If you believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God himself in the flesh, and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God has done, God has proclaimed our response is faith. Okay. And so the clarity of Scripture undergirds the whole understanding of salvation for Christians. Because it's not that we have to figure out what God wants for us. It's not that God has said something and now we have to figure out how to apply it to our life. It's God has done the whole work and then explained it simply and clearly and invited us to believe. And so, um, so this is what makes the Bible accessible and valuable to each one of us. And like I did last week, let me just share as we close really briefly with my own story. I have not been to seminary. I have no professional training all of the people who taught me the Bible and taught me how to handle the Bible, almost all of them also had no seminary training. In fact, one of the things that I love about our movement of Calvary Chapel, this larger group that this church is a part of, is it's full of people who have a ministry teaching the Word of God whose credentials are questionable. Okay. And so there's people like Greg Laurie who, uh, when he was 17, was preaching Jesus to thousands on the beaches and started a church, okay? There's Mike McIntosh, who was on a bad acid trip and believed that during that acid trip, somebody had shot him, and for years after that, including when he became a Christian, thought half of his head was missing because it had been blown off in this gun accident, uh, who, who pastors a church of thousands and has planted churches all over the country. There's Nick Long, who says before he became a Christian, he'd only read one book, Green Eggs and Ham. The reason why that's true, the reason why it's valuable, the reason why uh, it's good news is because the scriptures are clear. 
When I get up here, I don't stand in the confidence of my ability as an interpreter or my own intelligence or some spiritual anointing that's upon me. The heavy lifting of why I can be up here with confidence is that God's word is clear. My only goal is to draw that clarity out and then to deal with its significance in our life because it is in a different culture in a different time. Okay? And so I can say, here's how this connects with our life today. Okay? But a good deal of what I do in the scripture is just show how the scripture plays by the rules. As it says in Nehemiah, give the sense. Okay? All of you can do that. You can open your Bible on your own and know the word of the Lord. You can sit down with a friend and study the Bible together. You can invest in Bible school or seminary or these things and know that over time you will understand the word of God better. All of those things are true because of the clarity of scripture. But most importantly, because God has spoken and spoken in a way we can understand, we can respond in faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Yes, there is this idea of illumination the work of the Spirit in our lives. Yes, there is the need of interpretation and hermeneutics and all these things, but the basis, the foundation, the most important part of the doctrine of Scripture is God's gracious desire to be known and how he made himself known in Scripture. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this belief for this truth of what scripture is and does, that it is clear. And I pray, Lord, that we would have both the humility and the confidence that should come with a doctrine like this, the confidence that we really can know what the Bible means, and the humility uh, that, that we're still works in progress, and that our understanding is always limited, and although we grow closer and closer uh, to knowing you. We never fully arrive until, as Paul says, uh, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now we know in part, but then we will know just as we are known. And so I pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would do the due diligence and we would play by the rules of interpretation and we would seek not to impose upon the scripture our own meaning or even our own desires, Lord, but that we would go to it and listen to it and study it and trust that it will speak. I pray that you'd help us all with that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition to uh, a period of question and answer. There's a text number on the screen that you can text in your questions, uh, and we'll go ahead and, and answer them. I'll answer them. I have a few questions from this morning that we can start with. Let's start right at the top here. 
The argument re-deconstructionist books is funny, but it's a straw man fallacy. Now this is a challenging thing to respond to tonight because this really requires a conversation with two people and I don't have that, okay? Um, but I would suggest, uh, just to remind you of what we're talking about here, we talked about how deconstructionists uh, write books and expect their intention to be conveyed by those books. Um, and so the, the argument here is that, that I've created a straw man, that I've been reductionistic. And I would suggest that's not actually the case. Now it's challenging to prove that to you all tonight uh, because the head deconstructionists are intentionally coy, uh, paradoxical, etc. And so it's really hard to nail them down in a single quote. But they do believe, and I think this is totally fair to the belief of their system, that the hermeneutical circle is unbreakable. Uh, and they tend to present what I would say is a false, uh, a false dichotomy, which is basically this. Since we cannot know anything exhaustively in communication, then we cannot know anything truly. And so this is a paraphrase, it's not a quote, but they'll say things like, that means that every interpretation is a wrong interpretation. Now, we can actually resonate with the reality of that to a degree, okay? If, uh, if communication is limited by the limitations we talked about earlier, then perfect. Identical understanding between two human beings is always a little bit idealistic. There's always going to be places where what you exactly mean and intend doesn't get conveyed exactly uh, and, and come across. Um, but there, just because it's not perfect doesn't mean that it can't be true. Another mistake that deconstructionists also make is that because of this thing, all interpretations are completely relative. They can't be judged as one better or another. In fact, as I mentioned, uh, deconstructionists both try and show the fallacy of the status quo interpretation of whatever the text is, but they usually do it by employing the text in two different ways that lead to two contrary opinions. Okay? To, in other words, and this is, this is Derrida, uh, who, is, who is one of the great founders, French founders of deconstructionism. He speaks not of a lack of meaning in the text, uh, but an overabundance of meaning in the text being the problem, okay? I would suggest uh, that, that my application, not only have I had literally this conversation with people uh, that express that, uh, that true communication is impossible or that meaning is unknowable or that's just your interpretation. Um, not only have I encountered people who hold the belief in just the way that I presented it, but I do not understand how the conclusion that I've drawn is escapable um, in that camp. And the advantage they have is that they can just shrug it off. Uh, but I would suggest to you that they can't live by it. In other words, I would say I was trying to be simple, but not overly simplistic. And although I did reduce down their argument to an illustration, I don't believe I was being reductionistic. Four further responses, two suggestions. One. If you have the stamina, D.A. Carson's The Gagging of God engages with all of these philosophers extensively, first laying out their whole history and presentation and then responding to it. Second, is there a meaning in this text by a guy named Van Hooser uh, engages with this whole reality in a pretty convincing way and it's a good read as well.
If, over the course of history, most Christians interpret most passages differently, is clear really the right adjective to use? Clear suggests that light can pass through an object undistorted, but the past 50 years of Western European history suggests that devout, intelligent, literate Christians more often than not arrive at different understandings of Christianity, suggesting a great deal of distortion is baked into the process of trying to glean the truth from Scripture. Okay, a couple of things. First off, I think it's right to recognize uh, that for 2,000 years of church history, Christians in very different times, in different places, even reading the Bible in different languages, have a tremendous amount of unity. Okay? In the biggest and most significant teachings of Christianity, uh, Christians agree. Now, we have to watch out here. We have to watch out for the no true Scotsman fallacy. Are you familiar? Okay. The no true Scotsman's fallacy is where somebody says, no true Scotman loves uh, boiled eggs. And then a Scottish man says, but I love boiled eggs. And he goes, well, you're not a true Scotsman, right? It's circular in that it removes anyone who doesn't keep the fold and would be a counterpoint, okay? We have to watch out for that too, because obviously there have been people who identified as Christians and rejected that Jesus was divine or rejected uh, the major facets of God's character or these types of things. And so I'm not trying to say, but they weren't actually Christians. Still, even if you keep them on the fringes, the unity of Christian belief based on the clarity of Scripture, on the major teachings, is consistent. That's why we still, almost every church in America, would testify to hold to the early creeds of the church. Okay? Unified, collectively, those articulations are places where we agree and still stand upon today. Okay, second... There is a difference between recognizing the clarity of Scripture and recognizing the uh, fallibility of us as interpreters, okay? And so it suggests here that we can't call Scripture clear if if a good deal of distortion is baked into the process of trying to glean truth from Scripture. Let's own up to the fact that clarity of Scripture uh, stands in such a way that what I would respond here Um, is that the problem doesn't lie with the Bible itself, okay? And that we can have plenty of our own personal problems that hinder that without having to set aside, okay? Now, that may not sound like good news because what does it matter if the Bible is clear and we're incapable of engaging with it fairly and fully? Uh, That's where things like illumination come in uh, and these types of things. But I would also suggest this, and I think this is really important, most of what the church disagrees on when it comes to any given passage of scripture is almost always not what the Bible clearly teaches in that passage, but an inference from many scriptures. I'll give you an example. Many churches disagree on baptism, okay? Take infant baptism. Some churches maintain that it's right and appropriate to baptize infants as their entrance into a Christian family and therefore into the church. Others say, no, because that baptism isn't tied to a profession of faith, nor is that infant old enough to understand and receive the gospel, it is inappropriate to baptize infants. The truth is, the Bible doesn't talk about baptizing infants. That's not an issue of clarity. That's an issue of significance and application. The Bible does say baptism is the entrance into faith, and it does set baptism as the response to belief in Christ, but it also maintains 
uh, a significant place for children in Christian families. And we have the Old Testament example of circumcision, and they were entered into the Christian community through that act, so why not us, okay? So it's not really about the clarity of Scripture. It's not, uh, and, and this is a mistake that many interpreters or and I hate this word because it can be abused, or fundamentalists make. The Bible clearly says we should all be Republicans. It really doesn't. The Bible doesn't talk about the Republican Party. Okay? The Bible clearly says that capitalism is the best form of economics. No, it doesn't. The label didn't exist. Okay? Uh, it can say things that impact or speak in part to Republican ways of thinking or to capitalism as a system. Uh, system, but that's not what we're talking about, okay? We're saying what the authors intend to say and say through scripture is clear. How we come to inferences from that, how we put it together, how we apply it in our space and time and culture should differ because we haven't finished dealing with the text until the text has dealt with us as we are where we're at, okay? And so, so I would suggest that a large portion of the disagreements is not on the things that the Bible says clearly, but on the inferences we draw from these things, from the enculturation process uh, that happens here. Um, and like I said, once again, the good news is, if Scripture is really clear, even in our blindness, even in our stumbling, even in our misunderstandings, continuing to employ that, as well as engaging with a larger community, in fact, engaging across cultural boundaries, is going to clear up those doctrines. Yes, imperialism may have brought a Western white Jesus, but that's not what's happening in Africa today. They have their own cultural significantly uh, aspects that make them better readers of particular parts of the Bible. Okay. Americans can be so atomistic and individualistic, we have a hard time getting the significance of the communal aspect of Scripture. Not so for African churches. They get that. It makes sense to them. And so they may see more metaphors or more significance and apply those things more quickly. Okay. In fact, as much as we may want to lay all of imperialism at the feet of the church for some reason... We need to understand that no organization has been as intercultural or successfully intercultural as the Christian church. That's just history. A church that began in the Middle East, that grew in Rome, that moved to England, and now there are more Christians in the Southern Hemisphere than there is in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay? It has been enculturated in multiple na uh, nations, in multiple languages, uh, and in doing so, we have, once again, a demonstration of the possibility and the value of the clarity of Scripture because it means that our blind spots that, are, that we share culturally, the rest of the church, the universal church, what the creeds call the Catholic church, doesn't share. And so we, we can come to understanding, okay? So, let's move on. If the scriptures are clear, why is it so easy for me to misunderstanding, uh, misunderstanding it when I read it? Now that's a very personalized question and we have to impersonalize it so I can answer it all because obviously the only right answer to this question is I don't know. I don't know why this person has a hard time misunderstanding it. But I think there are things we can suggest. Once again, the clarity of scripture doesn't mean that understanding of scripture is instantaneous. 
The clarity of Scripture implies the, uh, the value of patience and humility. In other words, you have to be teachable. Okay? In fact, let me read to you from Proverbs chapter 2. I imagine that many of you have realized that even though I embrace the value of the clarity of Scripture, I have not forsaked aggressively seeking to study and grow in my ability to understand it. That's the way I am wired. I have given myself uh, to reading not just the Bible, but reading other books that would be helpful in understanding the Bible, of exploring and growing as an interpreter of Scripture. Proverbs 2 sums up why that is the case. Now here, the author is talking to his son about the pursuit of wisdom. Uh, that is more broad than what we're talking about as, uh, as scripture, but there is a significance here. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. What I want you to notice is what's required and what's presented here is a passionate, all-out pursuit of truth. Like I said, that isn't invalidated by the clarity of Scripture. It's made valuable by the clarity of Scripture. The treasure can really be found. The hard work pays off. I heard, a once com uh, heard about uh, once a student who complained to his uh, homiletics professor. That's a preaching professor. And he said, sir, the text you've assigned us, uh, assigned us this week is tremendously dry. And he said, then moisten it by the sweat of your brow. Okay, that's what we're talking about with the clarity of Scripture. And so it involves patience. It involves teachableness. It involves humility. Okay? It involves dependence upon the Holy Spirit because God has made available to us as Christians this internal witness who wrote Scripture himself, is the author of Scripture, and therefore can instruct us in Scripture. Read Psalm 119. Teach me your ways, O Lord, is the heart of the person who wants to know of God. And so that involves teachableness and involves humility. It also involves community. This is just observable. If you want to go down in history as a Christian heretic, just grab your Bible, flee to the wilderness for 30 years and read the Bible on your own. And let all of your blind spots and all of your sin nature just be built up and compounded into a single narrow focus of what the Bible teaches, okay? We need one another. Do not forsake the gathering together of believers, the author of Hebrews says, as is the habit of some, but exhort one another daily. And he says earlier in chapter 3, be careful lest any unbelieving heart is given over to the deceitfulness of sin, but instead we engage the truth in one, uh, one another's lives. Um, and so community is a significant part of this. Um, uh, and then the other thing is, I think it's easier to see your growing and understanding of Scripture if you stop and instead of looking at the Bible, look backwards. Look at how much more makes sense to you now. This is something that's been tremendously encouraging to me because sometimes I read big books and those big books don't quote the Bible passages. They just put the references in parentheses. 
And what happens now after 15 years of studying scripture is oftentimes I don't have to open my Bible and read that reference because I already know it. I do know the scriptures. I do understand. And like every Christian, I repent of my oversimplifications and my misunderstandings in the place where I misconstrued God's word because I didn't know any better. Okay? That's part of the process. Um, but if you just look back, if you just look back, you'll see that although you may have misunderstandings in scripture, in fact, I'll promise that you do right now here. You are wrong. Okay? That's true that doesn't deny the fact that you understand it better than you ever have, okay? Here's another. If one was to say that Genesis and Deuteronomy are simply myths or ballads in that their meaning are true but their events are not, does that discredit the Bible's clarity? In other words, in order to use the Bible as a foundation, can one believe in earlier text as stories instead of facts, okay? One of the significant aspects of clarity, as I mentioned to you earlier, is that we can expect the Bible to play by the rules. In other words, we can't answer this question until we lay at your feet the idea of genre, of literature genre, okay? Recognizing that the Bible needs to be true about facts for a poem like a psalm is different than true about facts for a historical record. If you're reading in the book of Judges and you read the story of Deborah uh, and Barak uh, and Sisera and the whole thing that happens in Judges chapter 4 and then you read the song about that victory in Judges chapter 5, we don't read those the same way. We don't hold them to the same standard of factualness because one is poetic in nature. Okay? When we interpret metaphors metaphorically, we interpret them literally. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's a big difference between recognizing a portion of scripture is a genre of scripture that's not conveying history. I'll give you an example. Even if the book of Job involves historical characters, it is not written history. It is, it is dramatic. It is poetry. Okay. All of the characters wax eloquently the things they want to say. This isn't recording a conversation that happened over lunch. Even if it's historical, the version of it as part of wisdom literature is dramatical in nature. Okay? There's a difference between that and saying that the gospel is just a dramatization of things that didn't actually happen. Okay? The gospel conveys, read the opening of Luke. I wanted to put an orderly account of eyewitness testimony of what happened. Okay? Genre matters. Okay? So, when we take Genesis, then, take just the beginning two chapters of Genesis, is that a historical account of what God did in creating uh, the world in six literal days? What we can't say is that that reads historically the same way that Genesis 4 uh, or Genesis 5 or Genesis 15 reads. It's different. Can we just say it's merely poetry? That's also very difficult to do. Okay? If you're going to say the first two chapters of Genesis are poetical, you need to give good critical criteria to prove it. And one of the problems I have is many people who present Genesis 1 and 2 as being myth, for example, can't seem to make a distinction between 1 and 2 and 3. Or 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. 
Where do you draw the line and you go, okay, this is different from the rest of Genesis because this is history and this is not supposed to be understood. What I'm suggesting here is that all interpretations of the Bible need to have evidence, need to have rules. And it is very easy and very convenient to say, oh, this is just. But it can't be your version of myth. You have to ask the question, did Moses write this believing this was a myth, intending it to be understood as a myth? Okay. We're looking for authorial intent. We're assuming that the Bible plays by the rules, and so we need to, play, we need to know the rules. Let me give you one more illustration. We don't know who wrote the author of Hebrews. It doesn't say. Okay. Uh, we are not sure who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, many would suggest that the best character for that is Solomon, but a good case can be made that it's not. If Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes, it matters no, no at all, nothing to your faith. It shouldn't shake your confidence in Scripture. But to say that a letter signed Paul wasn't written by Paul but was pseudonymously written by another person, that's different. That's somebody misrepresenting who they are to use, I mean, especially if you understand how power works in communication, calling yourself the Apostle Paul and then dictating doctrine and behavior is a significant power move and not one that we should be okay with, okay? But that matters. If you don't believe the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, I don't care. It doesn't say it was written by Mark. If you believe that Romans wasn't written by Paul, that's a different thing, okay? And so once again, the clarity of scripture is how we navigate these things. That there are things in the Bible that are poetry, but they show the marks of poetry, not just that we find them uh, incomprehensible or miraculous and they don't fit easily in our view of science or history or these types of things. The Bible stands or falls as what it presents itself to be. And so where it presents itself to be historical, we should anticipate historical accuracy. Paul says this about our whole salvation. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we are of all people to be most pitied because we believe in something that is not true and therefore has no value. Okay. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week as we deal with the authority of Scripture. Okay. This last one here is a little bit off topic. Um, did God really say anything one way or another about gender and trans bodies? But I want to address it not only because I think it's a very important question for our time, but it also helps us navigate what we mean and don't mean when we talk about the clarity of Scripture. Okay? First off, the Bible doesn't say anything about the reality of transgender. Now, if you've read portions of Scripture and you go, but wait a minute, doesn't it say in the Old Testament that a man shouldn't dress like a woman? It does say that. But that's not specifically addressing the fact or the reality or the truths of somebody who feels that their internal sense of gender does not align with their external physical traits. The Bible does not address that. That is different than saying the Bible says nothing to transgender people or about transgender issues. Okay. So, for example, the Bible says a lot of things about transgender people because they are people. So, for example, it says that they were created in the image of God, which means inherently that they have value and dignity as, and worth as human in, image bearers. Uh, in fact, the Bible would push further and say that God's design 
four human bodies, both male and female, Genesis 1.27, are good. But that's not all it says. It also goes on to say that the world that we live in, which includes but is not limited to transgender bodies, is fallen and bears the mark of that fallenness. And not just in the fact that we all have sinful desires and inclinations that move in the wrong direction, but we also bear the fallenness of the world in our bodies. Okay? Mortality is the obvious example, but so is infertility. God's design in creation is be fruitful and multiply, but because of the fall, not all people experience it. Okay? Not only that, but the Bible also looks forward, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, to a restoration of that fallenness. And so Romans 8 says uh, that we groan along with all creation that's been constrained in fallenness for the adoption as sons that is coming, the redemption of our bodies. Okay. All of those things, I think, are significant and valuable to this conversation. Now, the real question that's being asked here is, okay, so if I am dealing with gender dysphoria, what does it look like next? What do I do now with that? And that does involve uh, a lot more inference and putting things together, okay? Even there, I would add that uh, Christians of all people should have sympathy with things like gender dysphoria, this discomfort with your sense of gender versus your physical thing, because that's what we would expect. We expect the world to be fallen, and so that should evoke in us compassion. Okay. Second, we shouldn't be reject reductionistic and say that this is just rebellious choice and desire, and that they don't actually feel that way. There's no reason to do that. There's no biblical place. If anything, we should recognize that Jesus upheld the eunuch, uh, which includes people that we would identify as intersex, Okay, whose gender traits do not align. Okay, so intersex means of your chromosomes, of your gonads, that's your internal sex genders, of your genitalia, that's your external, and your secondary sex characteristics. Of those four things, one of them is not in alignment, maybe more than one. Okay, so maybe you're chromosomally XY, uh, but your genitals look more like female genitalia. Okay. That's what intersex is. When Jesus engages in Matthew 19 with the concept of a eunuch, he includes those who were born eunuchs. He invokes a Jewish uh, concept. They call them the eunuchs of the sun, those who are born, we would say, intersex. In doing so, he makes room for them in the kingdom of heaven, in the church, in community. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, when Philip is called along the Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch says, what would prohibit me from being baptized? That's not a racial issue. The issue there is not that Philip is talking with a black man and can he be a Christian. He's talking with a eunuch. And according to Deuteronomy, eunuchs weren't allowed in the assembly of God. There was a limitation there according to the Old Testament. But Isaiah, the same book that the eunuch is reading in the chariot, Isaiah says there's coming a time where the eunuch should not say, I am a dry tree, but God will give him a name and even make him a pillar in his household. The eunuch is fascinated by Isaiah because is there a place for me? He's just been in Jerusalem. He's not allowed in the temple. He's not allowed in the temple courts. And he's got this big thing from the law. What does it mean for me? 
But because Christ has come and done what he promised in Isaiah 53, there's room there, okay? The church should be a community for eunuchs. And I know some people who identify as transgender or gender dysphoric who find that, that reality that exists in the eunuch to be helpful for them, to give them a sense of identity and a place in Christianity, okay? And there's a lot more that could be said, but I think that's enough to illustrate and uh, if whoever asked this question is listening to the recording, I would encourage them to email me so we could talk further because this is a very important question. Um, it's just not one that we can engage with fully here. How do you respond to the statement that the Bible has replaced the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity in many churches? If scripture is distinct from the Spirit's work, how can we claim it to be so powerful? If it's not distinct, how can we discuss such attributes of scripture without discussing the Spirit? Um, okay, so, so two things. One, um, there is a way to use the Bible that is not beneficial and, as this question implies, may even be idolatrous. Last week I used the illustration of not mistaking the finger pointing at the moon for the moon itself. It is not uh, the scriptures that save us, but the God who the scriptures reveal. It is not uh, the scriptures that we trust in, um, but the Jesus who the scriptures present. Um, however, I also think we have to watch out from trying to distinguish some internal work of the Holy Spirit, uh, like the fact that God can speak today, uh, or like, um, like some sort of encounter uh, with the Spirit internally, and the uh, work of the Spirit known as the Holy Scriptures. When we say that the Bible is the product of the Spirit, we are using the Bible's own language. Okay. Paul or Peter says that no prophet spoke of, from his own interpretation, but as each one was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? In the New Testament, sometimes they say David spoke, and sometimes they say, for the Spirit said. Okay? There is a dual authorship presented of Scripture, of lowercase a authors like Moses and Isaiah, and capital A author, uh, the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is talking about when he says that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, the question here is, um, how can we claim it to be so powerful? And if it's not distinct, how can we discuss such attributes of Scripture without discussing the Spirit? I would say that we are discussing the Spirit when we talk about the Bible as being the revelation of God. One of the unique facets of conversation about who God is in Christianity is this idea that God is triune which means we have one God in three persons. And so sometimes we say God did this, and sometimes we specifically say God the Son did this, okay? Uh, and so when we talk about God making his, uh, making his will known through revelation or speaking with clarity, we are absolutely talking about the ministry of the Spirit. Where we need to watch out for um, is distancing these two things that some sort of inner witness or experience becomes uh, the litmus test of if scripture is true or valuable, uh, etc. 
Um, and once again, that comes back from these doctrines that we've looked at, the sufficiency of Scripture, and as we'll look at next week, the authority of Scripture. To, this, this, is, this is a crappy analogy, but forgive me. To argue uh, that the Spirit told you this is what the Bible doesn't mean, or that this part of the Bible is not Scripture, doesn't rightly own up to the fallibility of human beings, to the limitations of experience, or the constant warnings in Scripture of the uh, deceptive spiritual works. It calls us to test the spirits in 1 John. How do we do that? By comparing it to what the Spirit has already said and authoritatively said in the Word. Now, actually, I would have loved to talk about the inspiration of Scripture in one of these six weeks, um, but I felt like the other six were pressing, and, and that would put us into January. And so, it, it, for me, this doctrine, this reality of the Spirit of God is woven through the warp and woof of everything uh, that we're talking about. Um, uh, and... And let me just suggest one final thing, that, it, that if this is the case, as I mentioned earlier, recognizing the clarity of Scripture doesn't deny our need for the work of the Spirit in understanding it. Okay. Oh, this is a perfect illustration. Okay, so some would go, but can Scripture really be clear without the illuminating work of the Spirit? And I would say yes. And here's how I know this. Because in John, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is talking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he does open their minds to understand the scripture. He does that. It's there. It's present. But he also rebukes them for being foolish not to believe all the things the prophets have spoken. That's the clarity of scripture. He says it's all right there. It's all available. How have you not believed this? Okay? The work of the spirit has to do not with the clarity of scripture making it understandable, but the significance of Scripture in your life. What I'm telling you is, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, a non-Christian read this and understand the message and then reject it. But for them to be able to reject it, they have to be able to understand it. What the Spirit does is he takes the true teaching of the Word and makes it significant in our life. He brings about conviction. He brings about direct application. Okay. And so the Bible gives a general word of God and says, do not covet. And the Spirit says, stop thinking about your neighbor's car. Okay. It applies the word. But it's all unified. It's all collective. And so what I would suggest to you is that we always, as Christians, approach the Bible reliant upon the Spirit. And once again, just read the Psalms. That's clearly the posture of the Psalms. Teach me, O Lord. Spirit, search my heart. Show if there's any wicked thing in me. We need that work of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't change the fact that the primary and sufficient way he does it is through the scriptures. Okay. All right. Let me just hit the reload button and see if there's any other questions. All right. I think we're going to go ahead and stop there for the night. If you do have more questions, feel free to send them in. I will respond to them next Sunday night. For now, let's just pray. God, what we've seen tonight uh, is the possibility, the divinely created possibility of understanding who you are, 
and what you've done and what your will for our life is. And I pray, Lord, that we would see that possibility as potential, that it would give us hope and even confidence. But I also pray, Lord, that that confidence would be held with humility and that we wouldn't make the mistake of elevating our limited understanding as being the litmus test of what your scripture takes. Lord, pray, I pray, Lord, for all of us that your word would always be corrosive to our theology, that we would always be subject to the scriptures and that we would never make the mistake of limiting what your word teaches because of our limited perspective, but instead, Lord, that you would broaden our horizons, that you would confront the falsehoods we embrace, that you would expose the sins that make us blind, and that we would truly know you. And we thank you, God, that because you desire to be known, because you have truly made yourself known in Jesus Christ and your word, then we can know you with confidence, and we can have assurance. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.